Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, we have Alice French and Sam McCleavy uh, with us from the yeah (laughs) from the Minokin um, Foundation. Is it the foundation organization? Foundation's good. Foundation, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, So talk to us about an interesting project that they have. Um, So I'll let you guys can decide who goes first. Tell me a little bit about your backgrounds. Well, um, this is Sam. Um, I I. I've always been a history, historic preservation, geography junkie um, most of my life. Um, I grew up born in the Midwest, but moved um, to the East Coast when I was about 10 years old and um, have been kind of living in the Eastern seaboard for most of my life and grew up with obviously some rich history around me. So my parents were always history and landscape environmental enthusiasts. So going out and being a part of that every chance I can get was important to me. So Um, it made natural sense for me to go to college kind of seeking that out. And so I went to James Madison University, uh, got my geography degree originally. And so that was originally what I was interested in doing um, and decided after I graduated uh, that that necessarily wasn't the right fit for me. So I eventually went back, much to the chagrin of my parents, uh, back to school to receive my double major into history. And that kind of launched my uh, career in um, history and you know museums are always a part of what I wanted to do and historic preservation um, was always an important aspect of that so um, just kind of rose through the um, the museum field uh, doing visitor services work at first collections experience uh, and then eventually um, working at, in a museum where all the full-time staff left above oh, no. <laughs> yeah, so just like many museum professionals kind of the right fit the right time came along and uh, was able to get my first um, management job at a museum because um, I was really the only one left there to do it and um, and that's how I uh, fell in love with uh, managing um, museums and um, it's a passion of mine and found that uh, uh, was lucky to get here to Minokin just four years ago in 2016 and have been loving it ever since very good thank you And for me, I um, sort of came about this whole field in a kind of circuitous way. I um, started out in the arts and um, in design. I uh, worked as my early jobs as a draftsman, and I worked in the interior design field for a long time. But I went back to school late and got a degree in sculpture. Um, But I married an architect, and so I've always had a, a big interest in architecture. And then I moved, relocated to Virginia, and um, began working in the museum field with a history museum. And that really opened up a lot of things about local history and other interests. And um, 
when I was recruited for uh, Minokin, that was really an amazing for me sort of joining of all my interests together in one place, this wonderful, unique architecture project along with um, sort of some of these explorations with the um, crafts and arts to tell these stories. And um, I've just, um, I've really just think that it's a, got a lot of magic and it's still, we're still digging that stuff up <laughs> around yeah, us. Yeah. And it's, a, it's just a really interesting place to be for me. Okay, very good. And I think that both of you kind of talked about or touched about it, but was there a reason why you were drawn to history or preservation? Yeah, for me, um, I've always loved storytelling. Uh, that was a, a, an important part of my life. Um, you know, I, I was always enthused with, with stories and imagination, but, you know, when it became, was a storytelling that was real and part of our background, it became that much more interesting to me. So it became um, a passion of mine just to hear the story of the people that came before me that really made, had relevance to, to who I am and the community around us today. Um, always been uh, passionate about that and what really what history and museums and preservation can do for a community, um, giving right. back that kind of thread um, of, of their beginnings and the foundings and just having that interesting story. I always, you know, I taught, actually didn't even tell you this, Danielle, that <laughs> I taught school for a year um, at a small private school. And um, one of the things I used to tell my students is that, you know, history is just about a story and it's just yeah. finding the right story for you. And so um, it, it, that it, I think it's, it's, it's more part of our lives than I think most, what most people know and it's certainly been yeah. part of my life. I agree. And I think I also was just interested, I've always been interested in, in building and old buildings and, you know, there's that sort of love of that, of the ruin and uh, just the, uh, just multiple layers that um, come from it. And I, and like Sam said too, I think um, feeling like to be able to, I don't know, to understand that um, we have more, it's not just a building too, it's the whole place. We, we're right. telling the story of the identity of a place and then the people who live there and made that place mm -hmm. their home and why, and all that stuff gets brought together. And it just, um, it, to tell this, to tell an amazing story that that's about the past, I think, but why it's why we care about that still today. Why is it important to remember the past? Because we learned so much from that and we um, have many truths to learn from that, I think. So I think right. it's just a great place to be. I agree. And I think when we're studying history, we start to realize too that people haven't changed that much. <laughs> yeah, Our technology I know. has changed, but people are the same. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that helps too, is that, that we're not that different. And, you know, the things that, we're, that are going on in our lives, and there's many things that we're, t we're talking about as a community today in our communities, that, that uh, there's a lot of parallels. And yeah. uh, I think just understanding that gives you a grounding that things are not so out of control at times. Right. It's, yeah, I agree with you. So tell me um, the history of the Minokin uh, Foundation, the Francis Lightfoot Lee House. I don't know how that all fits, you know, so you can kind of, you can kind of help me with that. Sure. Um, Minokin, uh, I guess we'll start off way back. Minokin is an Algonquin word. It's a, a, a Rappahannock, which was the language of the Rappahannock a tribe, which um, settled the area um, long ago and has been part of it and still part of it today. Um, that's where the, the name came from and that we don't really know what the word means, that the Rappahannocks today do not know the direct uh, definition of the word, but it, it was used to 
to describe the landscape around us, the hills, the rivers, the streams, the landscape itself. So um, that was what the area was called all along. And it was still called that uh, when we had our first colonial um, European settlers in the area. And we know that the, the property was first um, used as a plantation um, around the early 18th century by the Grimes family. Uh, we know at that time that there was slave quarters, um, enslaved laborers working on the site as a tobacco plantation. Um, really uh, began to, um, uh, to, the landscape was really profitable by the later 18th century when the Taylor family owned it as and they've operated as a, as a satellite farm of the larger Mount Airy plantation. It was still called Minokin at that time. So they picked the landscape name up from the Algonquin word from the Rappahannocks at that point. And it wasn't though until 1797 when a ma major a ma manor house, the large house that we know as the ruin today was built. 1769. 1769, 1797. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> a lot of dates in my head. 1769, thank you, Alice. Um, 1769 when the house was built. Um, and it was built um, for after the marriage of, of uh, Rebecca Taylor, one of the, the daughters of John Taylor II who owned Mount, Mount Airy, to uh, Francis Lightfoot Lee. And they married, and this is the Lee family, the famous Lee family of Virginia, um, a distant cousin of the Robert E. Lee that most many people know. Um, but he, uh, Francis Lightfoot Lee, would be very instrumental in early colonial government. Um, he would be a member of the um, Second Continental Congress. He'd go on to sign the Declaration of Independence. So he's one of seven Virginians to sign the uh, Declaration of Independence along with his brother, uh, um, Richard Henry Lee. And so um, he became well, very well known for that. He retired from politics um, while the war was still happening, the Revolutionary War, settled back at Minokin um, in the late 1770s and would live quietly there with his wife, Rebecca, until 1797. There's that date uh, when he and his wife um, would pass away uh, within 10 days of each other in 1797. And after that point, the house went back to the Taylors and went through a number of different families through the plantation era. Um, and then we know at that time that's, that several hundred enslaved laborers lived on the site um, in clusters of slave cabins throughout the, 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 uh, the location. We'll talk more about that later, I'm sure, about um, their part in, in Minokin, which really is the main part of Minokin. And um, eventually uh, the house um, at post-Civil War lost its viability and eventually um, began to lose lost a lot of prosperity. And then the, the owners of the homes by the 20th century could no longer take care of the property. Um, the Amahandro family owned in the 1930s no longer live there. And you eventually began seeing kind of a demolition by neglect at that point in time, where the environment around it began to encroach. And eventually the trees began coming, springing through the, the what was left of the house, the ruin, and eventually a tree fell through the, um, the uh, roof portion in 1769, excuse me, <laughs> 1969, and then really accelerated the deterioration of the home. So it was at that point, um, during all this time, preservationists were very keen on trying to save the property, um, but uh, nothing was really done until 1995, when finally an agreement was made between the Amahantra family and the brand new Minokin Foundation to take control in 1995. And I, I did think it was interesting when I was on the website doing some research before before the, the podcast that they went in and took all the woodwork out to, to salvage it. And that's really fortunate for you. But that that was that was that they had foresight there. They did. Uh, you know, the Amahandros definitely knew knew what what the house was mm -hmm. and definitely um, had concerns about it. It wasn't something that they, what they didn't care about. Uh, they just couldn't 
financially take care of the property. But they did, yes, they were aware that the house was open and vacant. And so in the late 1960s, prior to that tree coming down on the house, they did remove uh, a lot of the, all of the interior woodwork and preserve it. And actually there's a great story about that, uh, that they, uh, they removed it, but many of the preservationists had knew about the house did not, were not, was not aware that that was removed and preserved. And so uh. several decades went by and there was an assumption that the house was vandalized and robbed. Of, oh, and like stripped. Yeah. yeah. And so it was a great relief that we heard in 1995 during the, the negotiations for the property that the Amahantra family had luckily preserved all of it. So it became part of the gift to Minokin, uh, the Minokin Foundation 1995, is to receive all that great woodwork. Yes. Still preserved. Yeah, very good. Did you have anything that you wanted to add, Alice? Um, I think he's covered the, okay. the timeline. And so since then, you know, we've been kind of a research center until recently, um, becoming more of an active place with our building project beginning. So, okay. Well, very good. And, and well, that's kind of a nice segue into, into the, the project. Um, and I'm not sure where you are, if you're still like in the fundraising phase, like the kind of the conceptual, I know that you protected it with a, with a still canopy, which I think is really smart um, to stop the, the water from being able to get in. I mean, any building, whether it, whether it's, um, you know, it, it, it being, you know, being neglected and then trying to have this intervention or, you know, any building needs a roof. So I think that's the, I think that's very, that, that, that's the, that, I think that's the, the right first step. So, and then you're, working on a structural glass portion has that started or is it still pretty conceptual right um so yeah it, it's it, it we as you as you said 1995 was the beginning of minokin holding ownership of the property and really in those first 15 years it was just emergency procedures as you right. said it's an open roof whatever we can we can do the, the environment was taking taking control of the property. So uh, the early founders did everything they could to kind of slow down that deterioration. Mm -hmm. And one of those things that they did was get a, um, a grant from um, state of Virginia to put up um, this large overstructure, which a lot of people have seen before, uh, even if they don't know it's Minokin, they kind of know that ruin with a giant overstructure over right. the top which slows down the deterioration, um, keeping the wind and some of the rain mm -hmm. off of it. Um, there is some negatives with it as well, not to get too technical, but those historic homes are meant to kind of breathe and be a part of the environment. So it kind right. of creates an artificial um, environment side, which does cause some other problems as well. But for the most part, I think it's better to have it than not. Right. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what we did in the early years to kind of slow the deterioration. But during this time, they're always trying to think about what to do next. And it was, it was during this period that they, they knew that they had to be thinking long term. What does this house mean? What is it? What, what's important about it? Uh, do we want to do a full scale reconstruction? Uh, and the answer to that last question was, was a definitive no. Um, we, there's a lot of historic homes in Virginia, a lot of colonial historic homes, a lot of dignitary rich right. white plantation owner historic homes in Virginia. Mm -hmm. And it was deemed that we just didn't, there was not enough of a reason just to do another one of those by itself. Right. And the real interest was, um, of course, the story of the people who live there, but of also the architecture itself. I mean, it's an amazing architecture. We had an opportunity with the house, the way in the state it was to be able to really see almost as an x-ray vision of a colonial home. It's right. parts and pieces in a deconstructed way that we could see mechanically how these things were built with mm -hmm. all the original materials. It had not right. been 
updated since the you know the beginning of you know late 19th century so it was it was a kind of a colonial home stuck in time which mm-hmm. fascinated a lot of architects historians right um, but it also allowed us to see those building components that were actually literally touched by the people who built it and created it and dreamt of its creation yeah because you don't see the interior of a wall right um Usually, I mean, you can explain, you know, how thick a brick wall is or how thick a stone wall is, but you visually don't see that unless you watch somebody, you know, lay it from the ground up. And that's very unusual, you know, to be able to see now. It is. And I think we wanted to keep that component. But the, mm-hmm. the problem is always, you know, it's a ruin. And the definition right. for ruin is that those things continue to deteriorate. Mm-hmm. So we had to enclose it somehow. And, and um, this is where the glass house concept came to be, is that we needed to enclose it to protect the ruin from any further deterioration. Um, but we didn't want to enclose it to hide all the original elements of the home. Right. So that's where this glass house concept, which um, puts in the original location the original walls and roof sections with glass and steel um, so you can see behind it and through it and still bring in the environment from which it's made into the ruin itself so that's another component you're we, you don't get a lot when you're in a historic home surrounded by right. four walls is that these things are made from nature and the in the, in the landscape around it and really right. built on the idea of what that plantation would look like in a, in a geographic geometric and um, really the a social economic way as well. So there's right. a lot of factors that were, that benefit us from putting glass mm-hmm. up instead. Well, and that's very much the, the, that, I mean, we weren't building walls like that until the mid-century modern. And that's very much the mid-century modern concept of, you know, bringing nature inside, like, so that you're, you're kind of, right. it's like a, yeah. And so, so I can, I can see that talking about the, the natural, I can see that when, when you said that it made sense to me from a, from a design standpoint. So are you, have you begun uh, construction on this or is it in the design phase? So we, we've begun construction. Okay. Uh, we, we started the full campaign in 2015 uh, to create this. And uh, okay. it, we believed that it was best for the project to begin really working on it as money was coming in. Right. So that first year was, getting the architectural drawings and everything down, making sure that we, we brought in the best talent. We have Machado Savetti, which is an international architectural firm um, working, out of, uh, working on it out of, out of um, Boston. Um, and um, we have Consigli Construction and their, uh, all their contractors, which is another large construction firm. Mm-hmm. So we wanted the best of the best to work on it. Plus we right. had advisory councils of historic preservation minds from across the nation um, to work on this as well. So we wanted to make sure it made sense was ethical and um, was sensitive to the historic property itself. Um, and so we began uh, the, uh, those drawings in 2015, began what we call a mock corner stabilization of one of those corners. Mm-hmm. We have to stabilize the existing stones up to the water table yeah. of the home before you really support the glass. And that makes sense, yeah. So we did that in 2015, did another corner in 2017, and really launched the major phase of stabilization of the existing masonry uh, this year. And so we've been doing that work at Minokin, which is open construction. It's an open park environment um, wow. since March. And you can see that when you come down to Minokin now. Okay. Very, very cool. Have you, um, I saw them on the website, the majority of the feedback was very positive. Have you gotten like purists who are like up in arms about this? Well, I, I can speak to that. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I just because I've been here a little bit longer, yeah. when we first yeah. decided to go with the glass house project, mm-hmm. yeah, probably every person who came walked through the door was like, 
I can't believe you're doing this. Why would you do this to this building? Right. Um, but I, but I always like to say also that I don't think anybody left without going, wow, I get it. That's really great. So that became sort of our goal was like, Hey, well, how do we get people here so they can, right. you know, so yeah. we'll support it and get what we're doing because, yeah. um, because it is a really special kind of way of um, interpreting, interpreting the past year. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think add to that, you know, I, I think there's always going to be things controversial when you're when you're kind of tr pressing the edges of what right. what these new industries are, and and I think that certainly does that, and I think you'll continue to 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 foster debates on what historic preservation means and what we're doing with it. So I, I you know, we we welcome the conversation. I think it's all relevant, and um, but I think for the most part, as Alice said, people when they arrive and get there and see what we're doing and why we're doing it, there's mostly buy-in for at that point. Yeah, that I, I think that's important. I think I think telling the the story and the why helps win people over. I'm not everybody because I think there's like five percent of the population that wants to complain all the time. But. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I don't. I just made that percentage up. I don't know. <laughs> Where's the scientific models on that? <laughs> so um, so tell me about how you're telling the stories of of the enslaved um, people that worked there and also the the native people that lived there before before the colonialization. So a lot of this is just kind of evolving right now. Um, we began with, um, uh, we had some research done about the, what we knew from like um, in inventories and censuses right. from earlier days. Um, and we had that sort of noted. Um, and, you know, that's on our, our website also. Um, but we were hearing stories that, that from, from local, um, from, locals who lived in the region that they thought that they were connected to the property. They were enslaved descendants right. or something like that. Cause Frank and Becky never had any children. So they didn't have any descendants. The property went through a lot of different people who stayed there, but didn't stay very long until right. the last family, which was the Harwood family. And they were there for probably the longest time, like 30 or 40 years. Um, and so we, we, initiated an advisory work group to start doing, uh, figure out what we needed to know and uh, to get, uh, and, we, and we do this a lot in the way, way we practice. We bring in scholars and we bring in um, uh, people in the field um, to help direct where we're gonna go with a, with a new project. And so we began collecting stories and doing a little research and genealogy. We got some support from um, the Virginia Humanities and from the Collis Warner Foundation to um, get researchers building this work. Yeah. And it has sort of exploded for us since we've done that. Um, it's been really exciting. We have, um, we have a full-time research assistant now um, to help build these stories. And so, it, so there were lots of things that were feeding into this though. We did some community conversations where we had something called the Sleepover Conference where historic preservation, um, architectural preservationists like uh, mm -hmm. Frank Vignone and uh, uh, Joseph McGill, who both have yeah. these different things that different projects that they do where they yeah. call attention to historic buildings. So they did a sleepover at Minokin yeah. and, <laughs> yeah, and I, I, they uh, we, came to, they came to Lancaster and I went to, I went to the one that they did. In okay. Lancaster. Well, the funny yeah, thing yeah, for us is we didn't have a house, you know, so, <laughs> <laughs> so but we did this big outdoor program, but um, we had a firelit uh, dinner um, with an historic interpreter and we talked about the stories of what it meant to be here. And everybody slept in tents. <laughs> um, and then we regrouped and had a reflection the next day. And it was really meaningful. And it started the conversation about where to go. And we also then we worked with 
university students to explore how we could do some kind of interpretation. Um, and uh, but the the committee directed us towards the cabins. So we have this archaeological site that has the footprints of where there were former cabins, and that had been excavated and then refilled in, which you do if you're not doing anything else with the site. Right. And um, and so we hadn't been doing any further interpretation on it from since that time. Um, so what we did was we decided to build a cabin, but not just build another cabin, like they have at Montpelier or something like that, right. um, because we didn't actually know exactly what this building looked like. So based on uh, historic models of the Tidewater region and of the type of cabin that would have been on a site like that, we built a framework of it, which they call a ghost structure in architectural right. terms. And um, that was built doing a historic trades uh, workshop, which is part of what we, way we try and do our interpretation is talking about how things are made and actually doing that. Mm -hmm. And um, so we did, and, um, and then with that, it's enclosed in this translucent fabric. So now we have this place to have this conversation and that's the beginning of, of most of our tours starts right around there. Um, and, um, and we're using that space further to use that to be now a place to do, um, to interpret it in multiple ways, like through maybe video projection mm -hmm. or an artist installation. We're building on an artist residency, working with um, oh, yeah. other groups to um, tell our stories. And, um, and, it's, and it creates a gathering place too. So we have a, a small fire pit there. We can have conversations in the evening. The place is illuminated at night. So it's really striking on the landscape. Oh, yeah. um, so there's all these levels of things that we're doing with that as we sort of are building on that. And then along with that, so we have this whole kind of maker we've built this kind of maker concept we're interested in the building mm -hmm. workshops um we do a maker's day where we bring kids out we have our own little brickyard that we've built now we're starting to collect and build bricks um, and we hope to expand on that into other historic trades um, we have the space to do things you know it just all takes time and money over a little right. while but we're <laughs> getting there and i think we're following the right path and people are really interested in um our, our new program, except for thanks to this year, have really been expanding a lot um, and mm -hmm. people are coming out because they're, that's what they want to do and that's what they want to know about and that's what they right. want to participate in. Have you made, have you shifted most of your programming to virtual then for this year? Has so, that yes. Been, yeah. <laughs> so we have things like this. Um, we, we're doing a couple webinars. We actually have one tomorrow night um, uh, on care, on an author um, who's doing a story, wrote a novel called Caring Independence about um, the gentleman who had to go collect the last signer's uh, signatures for the Declaration of Independence who couldn't actually come to Philadelphia. Right. So um, it's a really great story. And, you know, we are a signer. We have a signer's building. So we have, we, everything relates to different things. We did a Minokan webinar about the the history of the architecture of the building and its and its development. Um, and, um, and we're doing, and then, and, and, we're do, participating in a, um, a genealogical conference talking about the descendant communities that we have been um, uncovering too. So there's different ways that we're reaching that. And I'm building on some things for the classroom, um, although the classrooms are kind of have a lot going on right now. So we're not doing that much with them yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, and I guess that kind of goes into my, to my next question. And, and um, so I know that you on the website, you have a lot of different programs some for like being outside like the kayaks and you and then you have different educational programs so can you tell me a little bit about some of the other other things that you have at the site well because um part of what we do is we are you know doing a we are preserving this architectural land 
here, right? The, the mm -hmm. site and, and the land, which right. is part of what I would like a, a cultural landscape. So that includes the whole grounds and what's around it. And as you, if you walk the grounds, there's lots more to learn about the site beyond just the buildings. Right. One of those happens to be, we have some tobacco rolling roads that were on there that have, um, that we lead a trail that goes down along. And we go down to, you can follow the, um, the trails go down to a place called Minokin Bay, which is the widest part of this creek, um, which used to have barges come up and down from it. Um, and along that, there's also rich history of, um, of Indian um, sites that used to be there across the, across the creek from us is a place called Dancing Point. And there's other things like that nearby um, and just embedded in the landscape. Right. So we're building our trail system for that. And then part of that also comes to, we have this landscape tour, which we do now. And we talk about the different places and where you are physically, but also, um, you know, we're looking towards building sort of a waterscape tour too, because we have kayaking. Um, you can go out there and learn a little, a little bit more about the places that surround this. I mean, because that's how people used to get around. They'd get around by water a lot of times, right. especially when you live in a peninsula. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, very much, very good. Um, oops. The, the Zoom was talking to me. <laughs> it, it threw me off a little bit. So um, tell me a little bit about the challenges and trends that you see in, in preservation. Sure, I can, I can start on that a little bit. Um, I think that the challenge is today um, is, is certainly relevance. You hear the, the conversation about relevance everywhere you go when it, when it comes to historic preservation, museums, history, um, cultural sites. Um, staying relevant with uh, changing attitudes, environmental, social issues, social trends. Um, you know, people want to be moved and engaged in, in things they're talking about in their own living rooms and their kitchens. Um, and I think history sites, cultural sites, all have the opportunity to be able to do that. Um, and I think thinking outside the box needs to be a, a certainly something that, that historic sites, historic preservation sites need to be doing more and more. And that's where we really see ourselves right now is, is certainly this glasshouse concept is certainly thinking outside the box mm -hmm. <laughs> in a way, but we're hitting certain things. Um, I think trying to evoke emotional connection to history is something right. that is a way to stay relevant with people. Um, sites that tend to do that, that could be not always the easiest subjects, it could be difficult subjects uh, to evoke emotion, evoke those, those feelings of grounding with social concepts today are, are the important sites. Um, you know, the, the, I think the traditional model of, of museum historic houses, walking along the carpet, staying behind the velvet rope, talking about furniture is, is not is not doing it these days. So right. finding other ways to engage uh, the community uh, um, is the best way to, or yeah, connecting with the community around you. That's another big thing, um, is, mm -hmm. is ways to, to be able to, to communicate what you are and who you are and how you're part of that community. Right. Um, so we're trying to do that at Minokin and everything we're doing. Um, Minokin, we use this uh, phrase dynamic preservation now. So anything that's able to be uh, kind of creating a preservation treatment to really focus in on what those conversations and social issues are. Um, things can be dynamic and changeable. Um, if, for instance, what Alice talked about with the remembrance structure where the former slave cabin was located, you know, it's, it's, it's a movable um, conversation place. It evokes emotion, it evokes conversation on social issues around, um, um, uh, uh, race in, in today in, in our country today. So there, there's there's ways to do that, and I think um, historic preservation sites, cultural sites that can do that uh, more 
are do it more effectively um, are in the lead in, in, in um, pushing the edges of what preservation could be as we move into the future. I agree. And I think too that people that have typically not been included in telling the story of these historic sites feel more connected to history when they realize that it, their story is part of the whole, the whole story too. Yeah, you had a long time where, where those stories were not being told. Um, right. And, and we, you know, we still have a lot of work. It's not like that the information was not out there. Right. And you hear that, that a lot. It's like, oh, well, there, just, there, there are, there's no primary source resource. No, there's, there's rich histories that are out there. Right. <laughs> you just have to look a little bit. <laughs> you have to look a little bit and, and bring those out. And, and really it all connects in, um, you know, to, to, to our, our very rich, diverse history that America really all of our world is right, and so bringing that um, bringing that to attention is certainly something that that historic sites should be doing. Um, you know, talking about present day issues. You know, it, it, that's what people are talking about. Being there for that, being there as right. as a place where we can have that dialogue um, and right. that connection is really going to to help cement um, the importance of, of those sites to the community around them. Yeah, I agree. Did you have any anything you wanted to share, Alice? Or that you were thinking about? No, I was. I think okay. he's he's doing a good job covering all that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he let you take the lead on some, so I think yeah. you're good. I think you're yeah, playing pretty balanced. <laughs> so, um, is there something that either one of you wanted to share that maybe I forgot to ask you about, or that you thought about as we were talking? Yeah, one more. You know, we talked a little bit about um, the importance of the of uh, the history of the enslaved on our property. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at our property that we're really just caretakers of, and right. um, and you know, we didn't really hit on, and which I know is part of the question is is the importance of the Rappahannock Indian to, to that area. And um, you know, it's it's what Minokin is named after. It's it's right. a Rappahannock word. Um, they are still in the area, in the community today. They're still very much a part of what we do. Um, you know, we've taken this model of working with a work group to really help us when it comes to uh, interpreting slavery at our site and working on descendant community and, and really having them be part of our board as well. Um, we really like to take the same model when it comes to the Rappahannock as well. And I think that's important for all historic sites, cultural sites to do is to, to, to really bring the descendants of the people that were there into the conversation of which, what we, what you want to be. And really it's, it's, um, and that's the same model we hope to do with the Rappahannock. A lot of our attention right now is on the house because it's deteriorating. Have to. Have, right. have to. And so that conversation naturally leads into the enslaved who built it and um, mm -hmm. that, that community right now. Um, we, we hope to get more to the cultural landscape. We, we have 500 acres at Minokin. So um, that they wrap hand will be very important in the way we interpret that history moving forward. Yeah, definitely. And and I think having them on the board is important because if you have a seat at the table, you can kind of influence that that discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me, how can someone support the project, the foundation? Come visit us. That yeah. always <laughs> the first thing I say. Uh, and you can visit us both um, in person, and that's what's great about we were able to stay open for most of this pandemic. We are obviously, are, we have a visitor center that's been closed, but we have right. acres of landscape. And so it was much easier People can to be. get out. Yes, to social distance and be out at our site. Um, and we have that active um, construction going on that you can see that preservation in action. Um, so that's all, but you can visit us virtually as well. Uh, our website, you can www.minokin.org. 
um, you can visit. We have a new website coming in about a month. So if you're listening to this in, in October, that will probably be already launched by that point in time. Um, so you can visit us there as well. And obviously you can support our pro uh, pro uh, project both in your visitation, but also telling people about it, um, really the word of mouth right now. And of course, your gifts. Your gifts are important to be able to support the work that, we having, uh, that we're doing at Minoke. And we're fully supported on individual giving. Um, and so that's important to note when, when we talk to people that we're reliant on the generosity and the support and enthusiasm of people that think that this is an important part of, um, part of our community. Yes, very, very good. And how can someone contact you? Should they go to the website? Is that the best way? To yeah, they can go to minokin.org or, um, you know, we have a, we have phones, we have an easy phone number. It's 804-333-1776. <laughs> or Facebook, social media, Instagram, yeah. you know, Instagram, Twitter, we're involved and very active on all the above. So follow us on okay. there as well. Okay, very good. Well, I will um, make sure all of those are listed on our, on our uh, website where this gets hosted. And um, if you... Uh, thank you so much for for coming on with me today. I really enjoyed it, and I I learned a lot. And I want to make a I want to make a weekend trip down to see you. Good. Well, let us know when you're coming. I yeah. will. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Practical Preservation Podcast. The resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.